Hello, and welcome back to Exhaling Words, the language podcast where I just get to talk and you just have to listen. I'm your host, Aaron, and thank you for tuning in for another week. So, as I was thinking about what I wanted to discuss this week, I had a couple topics sort of converge, and this is probably going to turn into multiple episodes, and I'm hoping I can divide them properly, but... So, Norru's just happened, and for those of you who don't know, Norru's is, uh, we typically describe it as the Iranian New Year. Norru's is the first day of spring, it marks the start of the Iranian calendar. Um, It's not just an Iranian holiday, insofar as, you know, the modern state of Iran is concerned. Um, It's really a holiday that's celebrated all over um, the Iranit or Iranic world, so places where the um, historically Iranian world has had influence. So everything from nearby places like Azerbaijan or Armenia, um, although it's not as really as big in Armenia, to, um, you know, places in Central Asia. Um, It's also, you know, it's just, it's uh, spring equinox, so, you know, or Yes, spring equinox. I had to double check that. I was like, solstice? No, spring equinox. And um, so it's also celebrating, you know, there's historically, you know, uh, Celtic holidays around this or pagan holidays around this, whatever term you want to use for this. So it's not just an Iranian holiday. However, in my realm, I often think of it as an Iranian holiday because because I spend time with um, Iranian friends. I go to people's houses. We have parties, whatever. And, you know, a lot of my social circle is, you know, from that region. So, in my mind, that's what it is. So, you know, Norus. Anyways, so I thought that, okay, it's Norus, let me talk about Persian, let me talk about, I don't know, Iranian linguistics, and my, you know, half-assed PhD that never came to fruition. And um, I had a lot of topics come to mind. Obviously, some of them are very, like, linguistic-related, and then some of them are also... Um, very personal about language learning. So actually, I think I'm just going to keep this intro and I'm going to use this for the next several episodes over the next several weeks. So let's start. Okay, so this week I want to talk about quite possibly one of the most requested topics that I get. Um, Also just a topic that I end up talking about a lot. Maybe it's because I like it. And that is the influence of Arabic on the Persian language. I don't know if this is because... I speak Arabic and I speak Farsi and so people just think, hey, you should know about this. Or if it's because people are aware of the fact that this is actually what I did undergraduate research in. So quick story time. When I lived in Jordan, my program was super intensive. It was 100% in Arabic. We had to do research in Arabic. Obviously, the expectations were different. You know, we were like most of us were third year students who, you know, were living abroad. Our Arabic wasn't amazing. It was good enough to write, but, you know, it wasn't nice prose. Like, when I went back and looked at looked at this paper, like, you know, a few months later, a year later, I looked at it going, oh, God, that's how I wrote. Like, I just felt like it was so bad. So by no means do I think, like, I wrote this amazing piece of research in Arabic about this topic. But I love this topic to the point where I wrote about this topic for my senior capstone paper. Or no, this was my senior, like, honors thesis in undergraduate. So I really do like the topic. I couldn't find those papers, so I had to go back to some articles I know and then just use a lot of stuff that I have learned over the years, so there might be some things missing, but I still, I mean, I still have like a page and a half of notes here, so 
let's get into it. I'm going to try to make this the least crazy as possible, but I make no promises. So, okay, Arabic's influence on Persian. For those of you who don't know, in the 8th century was the Islamic conquest of Iran. So you have the rise of Islam and you get this sort of very quick political and religious sort of spread of Islam and of Arab peoples coming out of the Gulf throughout what we now know as the Arab world and expanding into North Africa and all the way into the Iranian plateau and parts of Southern Central Asia. There's a lot of history here that I'm not going to get into, but because of this, you know, obviously we have a significant impact that was left on the Persian language from the Arabic language, not just because Arabs came in and conquered, but then Arabs ruled. So you have the fall of the Sasanian Empire, you have the rule of the Abbasids, uh, which is actually based in, well, it's based in Baghdad, but there's a lot of Iranians coming into Baghdad, a lot of Persians coming in and sort of being part of the court of the Abbasid, you know, empire. So there's a lot of interchange going on. At the same time, however, for the first 100, 200 years in Persian, we call it Dogarni Sukut, like the 200 years of silence. During this 200 years, Persian wasn't really written. People were clearly bilingual in Persian, but the language of the court was Arabic. All major literary works were written in Arabic. And so we don't really have physical written records of the Persian language for about 200 years. Then we start to get early writings and early forms of new Persian. And that comes around what, in the 9th century and then into yeah 9th and 10th centuries. And then the 10th century is when we really start getting like early, early forms of new Persian literature, mostly poetry. Um, but we also get some prose. Actually, some of the earliest documents are sale of land, I believe. And if I remember correctly, it's sale of land written, it's written in the Hebrew script. It's like in an early form of Judeo-Persian. So all of that is a whole separate thing, super interesting stuff um, that we can talk about another day. But at the end of the day, you know, Arabic leaves an indelible mark on the Persian language. Whether or not you want to admit it, you know, there are plenty of Iranian nationalists who, you know, have gone through periods of, you know, we want to pur uh, purify the Persian language and get rid of all the Arabic loan words. You know, there's just, there's a lot of back and forth and I get it. And I've had conversations with Iranian friends where we talk about how I understand that sentiment at the same time. Iranian peoples and Persian-speaking peoples had a huge role in the development of the Arabic language, in the standardization of the script, in the standardization of Arabic grammar. One of the first and most famous Arab grammarians is Sibawe, who was Iranian. One of the like most important Muslim historians is Tabari, who is Iranian. And so the role of Persian speakers in sort of the early Islamic world is super important. And so while I understand sort of this ethno-national desire to be like, you know, let's push back on this colonizing language. And by all means, like, you know, I have no stake in this, so I don't really get to have an opinion, I guess. But like, I get it. I also, you know, like to highlight the fact that just because the focus was on these people's Arabic names or just because the focus is on the Arabic language and the Arabic script that's being used to write Persian doesn't mean that Persian speakers aren't playing a very important role in this period of time where they seem to be sort of silent, at least linguistically speaking. You know, the whole reason that the Abbasid Empire is really able to function is because they take bureaucracy from the Sasanians and that Sasanian bureaucrats, uh, you know, integrating themselves 
into the political structure. So there's a lot that sort of happened during this period that that definitely, you know, reminds us of the the very important role of Persian speakers during the early Islamic world. But now I'm I'm off topic and not talking about language. So let's talk about language. So the very first thing I wrote on my piece of paper here is script, obviously. So Persian is written with a modified form of the Arabic script. Period and discussion. A little bit more on that, I guess. So Arabic has 28 letters. Persian has 32. There are four extra letters. So pe, che, gof, and je are the four extra letters because these are sounds that did not or do not exist in standard Arabic. There's also some implications in terms of pronunciation, um, how the Arabic pronunciation and the Arabic spelling actually ultimately erased former Persian pronunciation. So even like a word, so the word Farsi, which, you know, we don't, I don't advocate for using usually, but there's a province in Iran called Fars, and we call the language in Persian, we call it Farsi. This comes, historically, this region was called Pars, you know, even as far back as the Achaemenid era, we talk about, like, not even we talk about, it's written in the old Persian inscriptions that people are from Parsa, that they are Parsi, that they are, they are Persians. So this F comes, this, this pronunciation of the P as an F is because Arabic didn't have a P. And in certain situations, certain words like Fars, Farsi, and also, for example, the word Fil, meaning elephant, which was historically Peel, these words have just you know, somehow adapted to only having the Arabic pronunciation and the Arabic spelling now. Generally, with the Perso-Arabic script, if, a, if a, a word is a native Persian word, it's written in sort of just the most standard spelling. So what I mean by that is because of all the added sounds that Arabic has that Persian did not, there are certain letters that have the same sounds. So for example, in the Persian pronunciation of the Arabic script or of the Perso-Arabic script, there are four Zs. So what in Arabic is zai, vel, dha, uh, and dad are all za in, 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 in the Persian script. And same thing, you know, so there are three S's. There's what in Arabic is tha, sin, and sad are all just sa in the, in the Persian uh, pronunciation. And so generally, the only time you're going to see a sad or a tha or a sa or se in Persian is if it is an Arabic loanword that uses that letter. There are a few exceptions to this, most notably the word sad, which means a hundred. And this was probably to help distinguish it from the word sad, which has a shadda or tashdid on the dal, which now, honestly, I'm forgetting what it means, but that's its own word. And the Persian word for 60, shast, also has um, a sad in it. And I'm not sure if we have a good reason for that because shast doesn't have like a, it doesn't have a minimal pair with the scene. But maybe sheen, seen written next to each other looked funny and people didn't like it. So they wrote it sheen, sod, ta, shast. Okay, so that's the script. I don't want to spend too much time on that because I have plenty of other things. So my next thing here, I wrote down vocab. And this started as what percentage of Persian is Arabic loanwords? And somehow it turned into a whole page of notes. Because there are a lot of sort of weird things that happen. And some of them are grammatical. Some of them are changes in meaning. But they all sort of fall under the category of vocab and of loanwords. So I'm just sort of kind of going to hop from thing to thing in the most logical order I can come up with looking at my page. So let's let's start with the percentage. There are varying percentages for how much of the Persian lexicon is Arabic. I've seen everywhere from very low percentages, like 15%, to very high percentages, like 60 or more percent. A lot of times what this is based off of is how are we counting 
actual like lexemes. How are we counting a word? So for example, because Arabic is built around these roots, you know, for example, if we have sol and eslah and salah, or I don't even know if that's a word in Persian, but or musalahat, or those are all the ones I can think of off the top of my head in Persian. Are these one word or, you know, or for example, if you have the plural of something. So if you have something like, I'm trying to think right now, we don't say kutub in Persian, but if you have kitab and kutub, are these two words or one word? In Arabic, it's one word and then it's plural. But since they have two different forms and Persian doesn't, you know, actually build its uh, morphological system around a non-concatenative grammar or a non-concatenative sort of morphological system, it doesn't, how do we count those things? They're really two separate words at that point. A, a, a scholar that I really trust, whose name is John John R. Perry, who is emeritus at University of Chicago, who I've read pretty much everything the man has written. He was the sort of inspiration for when I wanted to write my graduate work on this topic. And he was, you know, some of his articles I referenced during this. He puts it at around 40%. 40% of everyday literary vocab, which is about 20,000 words. So about 8,000 of them are Arabic loans. But again... You might see numbers that are lower, you might see numbers that are higher. I think some of it depends on also what is the corpus that you're drawing from. But I don't want to spend too much time on that because there's plenty more for us to talk about. So most of the loans that enter Persian enter in their barest forms, particularly when we're talking about nouns. So for example, a word like kitab comes in as kitab, just book. Though there are certain situations where you will see kutub, it's not the most common loan word. The, loan, the, the common loans are these sort of base forms that we find. Sometimes you do see the, the broken plural like kutub, but it, it often either has a different meaning or it has a different value. So for example, in Persian, you have kitab and it's plural is kitab ha, not kutub. But you use the word kutub when you say kutub khane, meaning a library. In, in other situations, though, it changes meaning. So for example, the word saheb, um, which is in, in Arabic, sahib, uh, means an owner of something. The plural in Persian is the Persian plural, sahibon. But the broken plural, ashab, um, or I guess ashab, ashab in Persian, sorry, I'm just thinking in Arabic now, ashab, or ashab, if you use it with another descriptor, it means the people pertaining, like people with a certain characteristic or something. So, Sometimes a word in various forms, like in its plural form, which in Arabic might be a broken plural, enters Persian or entered Persian, but is given a different meaning because it's sort of specialized in that form. And this is something I think is going to be a theme that we'll see is that because Arabic's entire grammatical or morphological system is very unique and nothing like that of Persian, which is, you know, an Indo-European language. This sort of like how how do words go in between these two languages is not a straightforward sort of here are loans. Even when we're dealing with Arabic loans into Turkish, I know this is a separate example, but when we do with Arabic loans into Turkish, they usually come in as, as a single form and they become sort of this almost petrified like form. It's just this. And then it gets all of the agglutinative suffixes of Turkish because Turkish is a agglutinative language. And I think this has to do with the nature of its morphological system. So Persian as an Indo-European language is, you know, is very synthetic, maybe not as synthetic as something like Russian, but still quite synthetic with a lot of prefixes, suffixes and, 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 and conjugations and forms, while Arabic is fully non-concatenative, which I don't even think like it's not, it's not synthetic, it's not isolative, and it's not 
you know, gluttonative, it's, it's a whole separate thing. And then when you get to Turkish, Turkish is a gluttonative. And so because the gluttonative languages, you can just sort of keep tacking on suffixes and suffixes and suffixes, even that's almost easier to handle. But how do you, how do you sit with something in the middle where you're looking at, we're looking at a non-concatenative system loaning words in their various sort of concatenated or non-concatenated forms and in their various sort of morphologically derived forms into a language that is synthetic by nature and wants to add prefixes and suffixes and wants to create variation on on these words but its system is not so easily you know divisible the way in a gluttonative or a very isolative system like turkish is so this this becomes the struggle Along with that struggle is the fact that in Arabic, we have a lot of synonyms. And so what happens is that sometimes a word enters Persian, but it has a very specific meaning, even though it might be just one synonym of that meaning. So there are words that have entered Persian that might not be the word that I think of for that meaning, but it makes sense. Or sometimes it is also like the meaning is just changed. So for example, I wrote down a couple examples here. So the Arabic word, the Arabic verb istifada, istifada means, it can mean to make use of something, but it usually carries this implication of like to take advantage of or to, not, uh, sorry, not to take advantage of. Um, it's not that it means to make use of. It does mean to make use of. But really what I'm looking for the word here is, um, is like not to take advantage of, but like to, to benefit from to make the most of kind of thing. I, there's a better English word, but I can't think of it. But when you take those verb istifada and you take its masdar, its jaren, istifada, um, which in, in Persian becomes istifade, and you have this verb istifade kardan, istifade just means to use, which is weird because we have two verbs meaning to use in Arabic. You have istamala and istakhdama, but you don't have istikhdam kardan or istimal kardan in persian you have istifade kardan like that's that's the form that somehow it got similarly sometimes they like change meanings or use different meanings so there's like the verb ishtabaha which means to suspect something or, or to suspect someone it can also mean like to to i guess i guess to take for to mistake for it comes from shabaha meaning like to look like or to seem ishtabah kardan in persian means to make a mistake just that's an error you made a mistake ishtibah kardin like I'm, and and in other episodes you've heard me talk about the difference between ishtibah kardan and galat kardan um whereas you know galata in arabic just means to make a mistake and so i'm like that's that's great why don't we use that one and people do use that one people dari speakers use galat kardan tajik speakers use galat kardan and so it's not that that word doesn't exist it's just that in iranian persian ishtibah kardan is the common word now as I was talking about sort of the different forms of the word as they come in, sometimes it's like you also get these synonyms in Persian. So I wrote down a few here. Intezar dashtan and montazer budan both mean like to expect or, or, or to wait for even. Whereas intezar dashtan means to have a waiting. <laughs> While montazer budan means to be waiting. They both come from intavara in Arabic. Intavara, intivar, that's the, you know, that's the jaren. And montavar is the active participle. It's the person who's doing the waiting. And so it's just one of these things where I'm like, why can't we just have intazar kardan to do waiting? Doesn't that make sense? Why does it have to be montazar budan? Or if you want to use intazar, it's intazar doshtan. You know, similarly, you could have tasmin gereftan, like uh, 
تصمیم گرفتن to plan for I guess is what I would translate that as somebody correct me if I'm wrong and then you can have musamam shodan and it's not that musamam shodan is the passive although it reads like it musamam is the passive participle it means to be designed like musamam in Arabic to be to be to be set out to be designed to be planned or whatever and then shodan is to become in Persian and so it's like doubly passive somehow but that's just not what it means you know so okay that's great like like I don't want to sound like I'm complaining this whole episode but I have this conversation with a friend who's also an Arabic speaker and you know and he's a linguist like me and he's been studying Persian for the past couple years now and sometimes he'll like you know call me or text me and be like what the hell is going on with this where's the logic here and sometimes honestly it feels like there isn't logic because there isn't sort of the same structure in terms of Arabic. There's plenty of structure within the native Persian words. There's plenty of structure within the native structures of Persian. But when you're dealing with Arabic loan words, it's almost like you're just playing roulette at this point. You're like, what am I going to get? I think it's this word and I think it's this form and I'm going to take it. <laughs> There's more. So let's talk about more, guys. Sometimes words change grammatical features. So for example, the Arabic word khalwa, which is uh, like a retreat, Khalwat, khalvat, I guess in Persian or khalvat, I actually don't know which 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 vowel they use on it, means private or quiet. It's just suddenly an adjective. Um, similarly, raha in Arabic, which is like comfort, rahat in Persian is comfortable or easy. Uh, salama is one's safety or well-being. Salamat in Persian is just to be safe, is safe. It's an adjective. And then you can extend it with a suffix e and you get salamati, and that is one's safety or well-being. Logical, right? I wish you could see my face right now. Oh, another thing about like words that take specific meanings. I'm sorry to go back and this is just at this point, this is what this podcast was meant to be. It's just me rambling for a while. So I was in a Dari class, summer of 2013. I was taking Dari at Indiana University. And one day I come in and i think it's a monday morning and he's asking us like about your you know weekend and you know it's just like like you know what did you guys do this weekend i'm like okay and so i'm like describing my weekend and you know you know i don't know or whatever and now i'm saying with an iranian accent but whatever and and then i'm like oh and then like finally i did my homework and i'm like like you know blah 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 and he looks at me and he's like what and I was like, is, is that not how you say finally? And he's like, no, no, no. Akhiran means like recently. I'm like, what the hell? Now, granted, in Arabic, akhiran can mean recently. Akhir just means final and even recent. And akhiran would be, you know, like, I don't know. I never say akhiran in this meaning. But like when you talk about things like, you know, fil ayam al akhira, like, like, you know, in recent days or something. And so, and so you, you could say akhiran meaning recently. That's fine. But in Persian, akhiran only means recently. And if you want to say finally, you have to say belakhire, which is from belakhira in Arabic, meaning like and at the end or in the last spot. Like, it's these sorts of things <laughs> where you're just like, somebody just tell me what word to use, please, you know? <laughs> Anyways, there's more. Let's talk about feminine loanwords. So for those of you who don't know, Persian doesn't have grammatical gender. Arabic does. And Arabic isn't just grammatical gender like the way a lot of Indo-European languages are, where they're like, 
these words are feminine and there's no rhyme or reason. You know, we can talk about suffixes, but it, it's just, it is what it is. Persian marks the gender of the word with a suffix. You know, so any feminine word in Arabic with a few exceptions, namely human nouns that are feminine and then a few other exceptions like earth, war, sky, like certain things, um, are always feminine and they get the feminine suffix, which is the tan marbuta. Um, and the tan marbuta can take two different forms, tan marbuta, which is, you know, I can't, I'm drawing it in the air right now, but you guys can't see it because this is a podcast. And what's known as a tan mamduda, which is the open ta or the, or the connected ta, sorry, or sorry, English mamduda, like, like the extended ta, which is when we pronounce the ta at in like, in idlafa forms. John Perry did a study of this about what happens to the feminine suffix in Arabic when it gets loaned into Persian. And he actually tried to quantify it. And so in his study, he found 640 words where it becomes a, just the hey, and 810 words where it becomes at, and 40 pairs of doublets. So 80 more words where you get both forms, both a and at. And then he tried to do sort of an understanding and analysis of are there trends in the meanings of these words? And so, for example, he found that the, the forms where it's at are more commonly, they are abstract, they are intangible, they are usually not countable, while the forms in A are concrete, countable, tangible items. And, and, this, and this even shows up like in the doublets. So I have a couple examples here. So for example, from the Arabic word quwa, in Persian, you get both qawvat and qawve. Qawvat is strength or power as a concept. Well, Gove is like a military force. It's a more tangible, real thing. Or for example, from the Arabic word irada, meaning one's will or one's desire or something, you get eradat and erade in Persian. Eradat is wish or goodwill. It's, it's desire. It's that abstract concept. While erade is a resolution or an edict. It's much more concrete. He also has some theories about like, in certain situations, could this, could this reflect register? So, for example, the word hekayat from Arabic hekaya. Hekayat is used often in like a higher register, while the word rese uh, from qissa um, is used in lower registers. And there's even situations where you can look at hekayat has become hekaye um, in, in Tajik and when it gets loaned into Turkish. And in those languages, it's, it's a much more common colloquial, maybe low register word. So he has theories about that as well. And, and, and yeah, and the feminine suffix is super fascinating. And I have an entire book that he wrote on it. If anybody's interested, I will recommend it to you. But I've been talking for far too long now, and I still have a half page of notes. So let's, let's talk about grammar now. I realize that I'm rambling and I'm talking very quickly and I apologize to all the non-native speakers, but I don't want to make this a 45 minute episode. So we're going to do this fast. So grammar. This is, this is far less um, here. So, first thing, loans that end in N, that end in tenwin fet. So the, so, the, so the tenwin fet in Arabic is, it's the marker of, the adverb of, you know, it, it's the marker of many things, but the most, e the easiest thing to say in English is that it marks the adverb. And so some words get loaned into Persian as, as set forms from Arabic. So, for example, rasman, um, meaning officially, 
or vaqan, uh, meaning really from waqan in Arabic. However, this ending of n becomes super productive in Persian. And so Persian speakers start putting it at the end of Persian words. So from the word john, meaning soul, um, or life, or heart, you know, whatever. We have the word John N, meaning wholeheartedly or like, you know, like really willingly. Let's go into more patterns like this. So um, there are certain patterns that have been calced off of Arabic. So this is going back to Arabic's non-concatenative system of grammar. So, for example, the Arabic um, professional suffix or hyperbolic suffix, which is fa'al, which is so it's the it's a it's a shadda on the second consonant of the root with an alif after it. So we get things like you know, tabakh and rassam and all sorts of professional words. Persian has those words that are loaned into, or that are loaned from Arabic into Persian, but then they also take like Persian roots and put it in. So for example, the word kafsh means shoe. Kafash is a cobbler. It's an Arabic pattern. It's fa'al. But we're putting, we're trying to derive a Persian root from another Persian word and then put it into the Arabic pattern, which I find fascinating. Similarly, there's uh, an Arabic pattern, fi'ala, which is a mazdar form. It's one of the possible form one mazdar forms, which in Persian would become fi'alat. And so from the Persian word nazuk, meaning dainty, um, we get the word nezakat, which is daintiness. Again, Arabic pattern, fi'alat, from fi'ala, or from fi'ala, sorry, with an Arabic, or sorry, with the Persian root, like nezaka, nezaket, this isn't an Arabic root. There's no, there's no way this is an Arabic root. It's totally a Persian root. And somehow we're building new words. And so this clearly demonstrates that like early Persian speakers understood Arabic grammatical systems, and they probably were more than likely truly bilingual, most speakers, at least at least the educated ones, to the point where they could take words from Arabic or from Persian and work them into Arabic's grammatical system, and some of these words remain in Persian. And this is probably why, as much as I like to complain about it, this is probably why we get those sort of weird forms where you can say, you know, tasmin gereftan, but also musamam shodan, and they mean the same thing. It's because Persian speakers were fully aware that tasmim and musamam are related, that that that, that tasmim is the mazdar, is the jaren, and musamam is the passive participle from the verb sammama, that, you know, they were they were fully aware of how this language was working. Another good example of this is the is the Persian word murabete. Murabite means connection or communication, which if you know any Arabic or other Arabic loanwords in Persian, you know like the root rabata can have to do with connection and stuff. And it, you know, it probably more than likely comes from the Arabic rabata, meaning, you know, some sort of connection or line or whatever. However, the Arabic word murabata from the form three verb rabata means to line up in battle or some form of military station. And so clearly, the Farsi word, the Persian word murabete, is not actually an Arabic loan. It is probably a calc construction of the mufa'ala form of the of the form three pattern um, verb in Arabic, and and of its of its mazdar, of its gerund, being pulled from a root of another word that Persian speakers were very comfortable with, and sort of retaking the position of the Arabic word murabata, but but changing its meaning entirely based off of what Persian speakers knew of the Rabata. 
So, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, I find this stuff fascinating. And because of time, I'm literally giving you, like, one example of each thing. But there's so much more to all of this. The last thing that I really like and I always like to point out is the use of the present subjunctive in Persian. So, for those of you who don't know, Persian requires, theoretically, especially in Iranian Persian, it requires the use of the present subjunctive for all subordinate verbs in the present tense. What this means is that, you know, if you're used to Indo-European verbal systems, for the most part, especially the Western end of um, the system, like, like a Romance language, for example, you know that you can use the subjunctive in a subordinate verb, in a subordinate clause, but it's always with a change of subject. If the subject doesn't change, you just use the infinitive. And this is sort of standard. This is what historically has happened in Indo-European languages for the most part. However, there are a few situations where that doesn't work, and that's in mostly right now it's, it's in Balkan languages. It's in Greek, it's in Bulgarian, Albanian. It's in, I don't even want to say it's in BCS because Croatian can still use the infinitive, but a lot of times, like in Serbian, if I remember correctly, Serbian will do this construction. I think Romanian does this construction, but don't quote me on that. It's mostly in Balkan languages. Probably not Romanian because the languages where this usually happens are languages that no longer have infinitives. There is no infinitive in Bulgarian or Macedonian. There is no infinitive in Greek. There is no infinitive in Albanian. And these languages have instead taken to using the first person singular, the I form of the present tense of the present indicative to mark the infinitive or mark sort of the dictionary form of the verb. And then because of their lack of infinitive in these sort of constructions that would be like, I want to go, you have to say, I want that I go or I want I go, you know. And, and, and that second verb is always in the subjunctive. I want that I go or more, more literally in English, I want that I might go. Um, to reflect the sort of the subjunctive nature of it. Persian does this as well. We say, you know, mikhaham beravam or mikham beram. That be and that ravam form are the subjunctive. Historically, they were probably an errorist and then they become the subjunctive. And then definitely with the be prefixing, it's definitely a subjunctive at this point. But Persian has a perfectly good infinitive. So why does it do this? Why? There's no reason to think it should do this naturally. It doesn't ha occur in Middle Persian. There's there's no evidence of it in the earliest attestations of New Persian. And even in other dialects of Persian, this doesn't happen. Tajik will still use an infinitive. Tajik and Dari can both use past participles with the verb Tavanistan and with other modals. There's no reason that it has to do this. It's fully functioning infinitive could do this. However, there were early translations of the Quran and there are early translations of other texts from Arabic where we see both infinitive constructions and subjunctive constructions like this appearing side by side, and then eventually the subjunctive construction wins out. And so linguists believe that this comes from um, the influence of Arabic, because in Arabic, this is what you have to do as well. Like in nice, proper Arabic, you say, uridu an adhaba, that ah at the end of adhab is the subjunctive, it's the mansub. And so this is this is mandatory. And so more than likely what happened is that from Arabic, this feature of using a subjunctive in a in a subordinate verb, even if the subject isn't changing, wins out, even though Persian has perfectly good infinitive and even past participle constructions that it could be using, which is what we see at you know attested in other dialects. Um, so that's something I always find super fascinating. Now, I realize that I've been like shouting and rambling for the past Lord knows how long, 20, 30 minutes. And I apologize. 
I really do. I, I will justify it by saying I really love this topic and I can talk about it for hours. And so trying to cut this down into a short sort of 30 minute episode was not happening. I'm already way over 30 minutes at this point and I'm so sorry. And I've been talking very quickly. And so again, if, if you didn't understand something, please message me and let me know or ask questions. Also, I'm kind of tired. And so I think I'm just hyped up on caffeine or something. If you have any questions or comments about this topic, if I probably tripped over my tongue somewhere and said something wrong, um, or if you have more examples of this, you want to talk about this more because I really do love this topic, please, by all means, reach out to me. Um, My name is Polyglot Aaron, P-O-L-Y-G-L-O-T, on all major social media, especially Instagram and at gmail.com. If you ever have questions or you want to talk about this sort of stuff, I love discussing Arabic, Persian, Middle Eastern linguistic history, Western Asian, and Central Asian linguistic history, and I would love to talk about it more. And yeah, let me know if you guys have any questions, and as always, thank you for listening, and I will see you next week. Goodbye.